Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I am your host, Misha Oslin, and due to enormous and unending demand by the listenership, I am once again joined, in fact, soon to be usurped by my wonderful co-host, at times, Cindy Yu of The Spectator in the UK. Cindy, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Misha. Hope not to usurp you. No, I think the I think the the uh, the the mail is running uh, nine to one in favor of you usurping me. Um, they'd like to see an abdication. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to happen, but uh, people are uh, were writing in saying when is Cindy coming back. So I know <laughs> that listeners will be thrilled to have you back. For those who who don't remember or don't know, Cindy is the broadcast editor of the Spectator in the UK. The Spectator, the world's oldest continuously published magazine, and also presenter of the Chinese Whispers podcast, another must-listen podcast. Um, Cindy uh, was brought up in Nanjing, and she has a master's in Chinese studies at Oxford, and you can follow her on Twitter at Cindy Shaodan Yu. And those of you who know Chinese will know exactly how to spell that. Um, and so, Cindy, we have a, a great guest today. Um, someone I've been looking forward to having on uh, for a while, not least uh, because he, well, like you, uh, was a journalist and uh, is based out in Singapore. And that is James Crabtree. Uh, James is the executive director of IISS Asia, IISS, which is the International Institute for Strategic Studies, based in London, as many of you know. Uh, James uh, is also an associate professor of practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Uh, he was a uh, a journalist for the uh, Financial sure. Times. Wait, I'm getting waved off. He isn't anymore a, 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 an associate professor in practice. He used to be. He isn't anymore, so his <laughs> his double I double S webpage needs to be updated. I don't. I don't want to. Uh, uh, it should. It should say he used to be. He was, folks. He was an associate professor. Uh, but he and he also was a journalist for the Financial Times, and his best-selling book from 2018, "The Billionaire Raj: A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age," which is a must-read for those of you interested in India. So, James Crabtree, welcome to the Pacific Century. Delighted to be here, Misha, Cindy. Thanks so much for having me. We are we're really glad. There's a lot to talk about. Obviously, um, you know, you have a unique perspective on Southeast Asia. Your work on India. Uh, China, of course, we want to get to all of that, but we have to ask about the queen, the funeral, the king, um, not least because uh, over here in, in the States and in, in D.C. and everywhere has been focused on this, uh, not not as much, of course, as, as Cindy in, in London, but people have been focused on it for uh, for 10 years. And on the show, we've actually had a, a, a decent number of um, British guests, including uh, our our common friend Tom Tugendhat, who is now Minister of State for Security. We've had the first Sea Lord. Uh, we've had a number of uh, Rana Mitter. We've had a number of of guests um, talking about the UK's connection to Asia, um, the the tilt back east, the the moving back east of Suez. So, just a quick sort of color question, James. You know, you're in Singapore, former colony, um, member of uh, the Commonwealth. Um, there are 19 Commonwealth countries uh, in Asia. Um, has this had any impact? Did people pay attention? Does it mean anything to them or, or not at all? And we can move on. I think it is a, a sort of an unusual moment, maybe the last great moment of, of sort of British 
soft power global dominance in a, in a funny way. Um, so the, the, there was an awful lot of media coverage and people paid attention, I don't think with anything like the, the fervor that was true in the United Kingdom. Um, and, and in a strange way, I think the, this may be the, the high point of a moment in which a country like the United Kingdom in Europe can produce an event that has this kind of global impact. Um, uh, it's almost the last of its era. I mean, you've seen commentary about the fact that the death of the Queen is the, the marks the, the close of a long imperial era, but I think it also probably marks the close of a moment in which a country like Britain can um, produce a, a global event of, of this scale. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's been um, widely observed, um, even at an institute, so the Institute for Strategic Studies, um, I found that there were uh, diplomats and friends in Singapore who were who were spontaneously reaching out to offer condolences as if they were feeling like they should be condoling somebody and, and the nearest Brit would do the job. Um, <laughs> so I, a little bit a little bit like I was a sort of outpost of the British High Commission. <laughs> I was the recipient of a few random acts of condolence, but uh, but I, I I think I think one should see this as as a as a sort of um, uh, almost a, a moment in the trajectory of relative decline as opposed to a, a symbolism of, of kind of British vitality somehow. Interesting. That's, that's, that's very interesting because a lot of people, you know, there's been commentary that this shows, you know, obviously the soft power, hate the term, but the soft power of Britain, the um, continuing attraction and that there might be some type of revitalization, but but of course the the, the economic and political headwinds are are extraordinary. So um, it's it's an interesting take from your part, and of course the open question of where the um, the Commonwealth uh, will go after this without the Queen, who's you know really who's not brainchild, but certainly one of the key parts of her reign was focusing and building and developing Commonwealth ties. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that. Maybe we'll come back to you in a, in a few years of King Charles's reign to see how the Commonwealth is doing. Um, but I know that that Cindy has a has a more uh, a, a bigger question to, to to move us into the the politics of today and the future as opposed to as you put it, James, the politics of the past. Yeah, James, so this is um, slightly cheeky because it's such a broad question, so I'm going to warn you that now. Um, and I, I just thought we could start by talking, you know, you just mentioning decline, but let's talk about the rise, the rise of empires or the rise of influence. And when we look at the American experience, we can see that certainly for the US, securing its near abroad, um, the countries near it were, was so important, for example, through the Monroe Doctrine. So when we look at Southeast Asia then, for China's rise, how successful has it been in creating alliances in this vast region that we call Southeast Asia? Um, and also, what are the areas at which it still struggles or that it will never overcome? So is it, for example, trade, where it does very, very well, and security, where it doesn't? What is that overview like? So it's a great question. Uh, I think you answer it in one of two ways, um, which is uh, on one level, China has been uh, hopeless at, at creating alliances. It doesn't really have any formal treaty allies in the way that the United States does. So the US is enmeshed in this system of, of alliance relationships in um, NATO in, um, in the Northern Hemisphere. And then uh, in the further east, it has this web of bilateral uh, security ties with Australia and Japan. Uh, the Philippines, Thailand, um, and China doesn't have any such relationships. And so uh, India doesn't either. I mean, for, for historical reasons, both countries have been very skeptical of the value 
of alliances because they fear that they might entrap them in various ways into conflict. But China has been much more successful in developing various uh, strong ties, partnerships of different kinds with countries in its near abroad. Um, it has two or three countries that you might class as kind of near allies in North Korea, Cambodia, Pakistan, I guess would be would be part of that cadre. And then in the midst, you have Southeast Asia, which is in a sense, um, the, the, the focal point to some degree of the new Cold War. So just um, as the, the as Central Europe um, was the, the battleground of the old Cold War, so so much of Central Asia is really the, the, where the two superpowers are, are looking to, to win over the non-aligned. And so China has been trying to do that partly simply by the sheer power of its um, economic engine, which many countries in Southeast Asia look to as the future of you know their, their meal ticket in the future. It has been doing it through expensive infrastructure projects, um, all sorts of ways in which China has been trying to uh, secure its near abroad without resorting to, to military power. Um, and that, so we at the IISS every year, we host um, a big defense summit called the Shangri-La Dialogue. And so in a sense, the Shangri-La Dialogue is one of the places that you come to uh, um, on, uh, on a Saturday in June at the Shangri-La Hotel in Singapore, and you see both the US defense minister and the Chinese defense minister and all of the Southeast Asian defense ministers. And the conversation that they're really having between one another is where stands this relationship between the great powers um, and uh, the countries of Southeast Asia caught in between uh, both uh, the US and China and to some degree in here as well. And well, just to follow up on your point about America, it does seem like in this moment of um, Taiwan being a flashpoint that's coming up closer and closer and in the aftermath of Pelosi's visit, that the Americans are particularly keen on making countries pick sides. Is that a wise move to keep going with or, or would that actually you know, do, do Southeast Asian countries actually prefer the kind of ambiguity that they can trade with China, but also get other other benefits from America that they don't want to pick sides? Yeah, the Southeast Asian countries definitely don't want to pick sides. That's the mantra that you hear in this part of the world all the time. It's almost akin to official policy for any of the ASEAN members. Um, you know, we don't want to pick sides. We want to have good relations with both countries. Um, the cliche is that they look to China for economic growth, and, and many of them look to the U.S., uh, as the, the bulwark of the security order in the region. And some of them like, like Singapore have quite deep security partnerships with the US as well. Um, so uh, whether the US is actually forcing countries to choose sides, I think you could contest that. I mean, certainly they pay lip service to the idea that they aren't forcing um, countries in Southeast Asia to uh, to pick, pick sides if, if you're sitting there in the State Department or the Pentagon then you know the situation these Southeast Asian countries find themselves in uh, and you don't really expect that Singapore or Vietnam is going to become a formal U.S. treaty ally and start you know saying that you're going to intervene in the defense of Taiwan. Um, what you're trying to do is stop the perception of a gradual drift towards China in this region as China's economic and military power grows. And that I think is the thing that frightens American officials that if they do nothing, um, then there's a feeling that the, the gravity of China's sheer size, its presence in the region, its growing military might will simply draw more and more countries into its orbit. And um, just to follow up with that, um, how do you assess the US, James, in, in terms of its success or not? In achieving that that slow, you know, trying to slow down that that Chinese um, expansion and, and expansion of influence and and power, I think it's a mixed bag. To be honest, uh, under the Biden administration, uh, for the first year, 
the critique of the administration was that they hadn't actually done anything very much in Southeast Asia. So there hadn't been any visits. They weren't really paying attention. They had other, other things that they were focused on. In the last year, that's improved a bit. I don't think anybody is grumbling anymore about um, about no, no one turning up. You've had plenty of visits and it seems like the US is, is sort of reasonably engaged, um, not just in Southeast Asia, but also in other areas like the Western Pacific where, where suddenly you've got quite a lot of US attention. Um, on the other hand, um, there still is uh, a bit of a lopsided economic relationship that US isn't offering uh, countries in the region the kind of trading relationships that they tend to want, although they're making a kind of half half-hearted attempt to, to develop a new Indo-Pacific economic framework. Um, so I think the, the problem from the US perspective is it appears to be a slightly uh, one-note strategy in which um, the US is attempting to say that it, it can be a, uh, an all-weather great power, but really what it's viewed as in this region is a, is a security partner, um, either in terms of sort of hard security or to some degree in terms of the provision of public goods. Um, which is okay, it's still an important player, uh, but is it doing enough to both push back against Chinese initiatives? So for instance, when China turns up and tries to build a military base in Cambodia or sends a spy ship to Sri Lanka or signs a security pact with the Solomon Islands, um, is the US sort of doing enough to push back against that or indeed to anticipate these things and stop them before they're happening? Um, and is it uh, managing to develop the kind of broad-based relationships with its potential partners, uh, which will give them options uh, to choose somebody else other than the Chinese? So what are the methods for the US to do that? You know, if you were advising President Biden, is it mainly about money and investment or is it about intelligence? Or what is it about? It's quite hard to match uh, the Chinese dollar for dollar, um, although... Some countries do a decent job of that. Japan is the most obvious in, in this region. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a sort of tension in the US approach, which is it's trying to do two things at once. On the one hand, it's trying to push back against China from a hard security perspective, and that means uh, putting more military uh, equipment uh, into the area and investing more money, higher defense spending, more aircraft carriers, more missiles, more... Uh, more facilities in Guam, uh, trying to do more with its core allies in the Quad in particular. So um, doing more with Australia, doing more with Japan. So it's trying to do that on the one hand, sort of hard security balancing to try and uh, keep China's military rise uh, in check or, or balanced. But it's also trying to position itself as a provider of public goods. So if you're a Southeast Asian um, economy that has um, slightly rickety infrastructure or is worried about climate change uh, or doesn't quite know how to um, manage the rise of artificial intelligence, then the United States and its partners um, want to swoop in and say, well, we'll, we'll help you. We're, we're providing all these useful things that will help your country develop um, COVID uh, vaccines was a good example of that, where the quad countries uh, came together and said, well, we'll provide uh, a whole bunch of vaccines for people in Southeast Asia because, you know, we're, we're, we're nice people and we're trying to kind of win friends and influence people. The problem is those two things are to some degree in tension with one another. Um, they're hard to do at the same time and they're hard to do well. So a body like the Quad, um, for every time it's providing vaccines, it's not focusing uh, on, on hard security. And so the U.S 
stress is really trying to do two things at once and it's quite difficult to do them at the same time. Um, and, and it's doing both of them for, for good reason. If you only talk about hard security, then that, that um, spooks the horses. Uh, the, the countries in Southeast Asia that are worried about China get very nervous if the US appears to be coming in as it was during the Trump years and being uh, a force for destabilization in the region and encouraging an arms race. So that becomes a problem. Uh, if on the other hand, you spend your time um, only talking about the, the kind of cuddly fluffy stuff uh, that we can all agree with infrastructure and vaccines and all the rest of it um, then are you taking your eye off the ball of of the challenge of china's encroaching military might around the region and do your partners therefore look at you and think well the us isn't actually doing enough in terms of uh, shifting kit and military spending into the region and therefore China's rise is inevitable and we might as well just accommodate to the fact that, that China will be um, here forever and the Americans might not be. So it's a very tricky dilemma that the US is, is grappling with, um, not, not at all an easy one to, to manage. Well, James, in this context then, what do you make of President Biden's repeated, now repeated claims that the US will come to Taiwan's defense militarily. You know, we're, we're recording this uh, a few days after his latest uh, such uh, statement, again, walked back by his officials. But, you know, what, what do Southeast Asian countries make of this apparent end to strategic ambiguity when it comes to um, Taiwan? I think people are pretty worried about this. Uh, I think there's a degree of confusion about what the US position is, which given the stakes are so high as is, is the Americans trying to, to shift important elements of the status quo over Taiwan. Um, I think there are people within the Biden administration who don't want to do that, who, who want to kind of keep this status quo going uh, as long as they can for fear that anything that follows it would be worse for Taiwan and potentially for the US. I think the big problem, though, is that every side in the, the Taiwan uh, dispute is, in a sense, trying to change the status quo in their own way. So China is self-evidently trying to change the status quo, and it's doing this by intimidating Taiwan and most recently by lobbing missiles um, over the country. The U.S., uh, to some degree, is is through its government seeking to change elements of the status quo. And even if you don't believe that, if you think the administration is true to its word and is sticking to its one China policy and all the rest of the associated agreements, the various sort of assurances and the Taiwan Relations Act, then it's pretty clear that the, the substructure on which that US status quo is based is shifting um, you know, in, in Congress. Uh, in amongst elite opinion in the run-up to the 2024 Republican election. It, it, it's clear that there's lots of people out there in, in the US um, who no longer really believe that the status quo is tenable. And then in Taiwan itself, um, Taiwan um, public opinion is, if not heading firmly for independence, it, it's sort of shifting in that direction. And I think we'll see that, quite likely to see that in November's um, local elections that some people call the midterm elections, uh, in which most polls seem to suggest that the KMT, the party that would like to see um, some degree of rapprochement with China is likely to do badly and that the party of President Tsai is likely to do reasonably well. So in a sense, this, this rather shaky consensus that um, we've been holding to for the last few decades is kind of falling apart at, on all sides. And that's what makes the situation so unstable. And so it isn't so much that, you know, if you're sitting here in Southeast Asia, you look at the US and you think, well, the US is, is kind of ripping up the, 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 the status quo. It's that the status quo is, is sort of being chipped away at um, on all sides. And that makes this very um, unstable. And I think 
think it means it's quite likely that um, we won't have to wait nearly as long uh, for a fifth Taiwan Straits crisis as we had to wait between the third and the fourth. Um, and maybe this is a good time for um, us to lead on to a bit of India, Misha, but I, I just had one more um, question on more China focus, which is, James, you mentioned the Quad there, um, that's India, Japan and Australia and, and the cooperation they have with the US. But can India be regarded as an ally when it comes to dealing with China in Asia, given that we have just seen the wrap up of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, where India seems very much pulled into the axis of this um, alleged legal authoritarian gentleman. Oh, that's a nice way of putting it. Um, yes, yeah, I think I think India is a pretty reliable partner of the West, probably more reliable than it's given credit for. So India has been trending in a in a kind of pro-US, pro-Western direction uh, for at least the last uh, decade and a half. Um, albeit from a low base, given the distrust between the US and India and the West um, for post-colonial and Cold War reasons. Um, uh, up until maybe five years ago, India's position was to, to sort of try and keep a rough hedge between China and the US. But the, the um, border incursion that uh, China undertook a couple of years ago, which led to clashes on the border, had an enormous effect on Indian elite and public opinion and has pushed India much more firmly than I think any of us um, um, would have thought possible. Um, in my view, it's an enormous geopolitical blunder on Beijing's part, where for some tactical gains in the Himalayas, they have um, uh, sort of given uh, an excuse for India uh, to uh, move much more close, much, much more closely in, in lockstep uh, with Europe and, and Japan and Australia um, and the US. Now, that doesn't mean that India is going to go along with everything that the West wants to do. And we saw that very clearly in the Ukraine conflict when um, there was an expectation amongst some in the West who didn't know India that well, that you know everybody else was going to sanction Russia, so India would as well. And India said, well, actually, we don't really want to do that. We quite value our relationship with Russia. Um, we're worried about China. That's why we want to have a good relationship with Russia. Um, and I don't think it's very realistic to expect, for instance, if China does decide to invade Taiwan, which isn't impossible, I don't imagine that India is suddenly going to send troops to Taiwan's defense. So there are limits on the nature of this partnership. But I think um, the notion that India is somehow uh, playing both sides of this, I don't think is an accurate reading of where Prime Minister Modi and his um, foreign affairs minister Jayashankar are at. Yes, they um, are a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, but in a funny way, it's quite a good thing that they are because it renders the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement a much less effective body with India in uh, than it would be if India was outside because India in a sense is a sort of actually a kind of blocking mechanism uh, to have India um, in there. As you saw when um, Modi uh, was interpreted as, as chastising Putin uh, over uh, his adventure in Ukraine. So the fact that Modi was there in, in a funny way, he, he was sort of acting uh, in that forum as the, 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 the kind of the nearest spokesperson for a view that would have been quite close to the West. So, so I think it's always ambiguous with India. Um, uh, India finds its own way, has a strong sense of its own national interest. Um, it can be parochial as many, indeed all countries can. Uh, but I think the right way of reading the trajectory of India's position um, is to see that it has been undertaking a deliberate and steady um, realignment to bring it closer to the US in particular, but also the rest of the Quad um, and the European countries.
countries, and that that has been continuing uh, post-Ukraine and, and will continue for so long as India feels deeply threatened by the rise of China, uh, which it does. It feels threatened on its long border, uh, where the two countries very nearly had a war last year. It feels threatened in the Indian Ocean, um, where China has been making various incursions. And so uh, I think, um, you know, you shouldn't expect miracles, but uh, you, you should see that India's change in geopolitical direction over the last five or 10 years is, 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 a, is a sort of sustained and strategic one. So to continue with the the, the India uh, theme for a second. I'd like to ask more about, uh, or, or, or in addition, about India's relations with Southeast Asia. So there was a, a, a lot made about a decade or so ago of the, the look east, act east policy that India would not simply be focused on uh, Pakistan and its border there, but would actually be reaching back to some of its traditional uh, trading partners and areas of influence in, in Southeast Asia, certainly trade along the um, the southeastern coast from Chennai towards Southeast Asia was uh, was a major part of that. How is, has how is that gone? Has India actually begun to play a larger role in, in Southeast Asia, independent of, of, of the, the China question or the, or the U.S. question? I think it's a mixed bag um, to the extent that India has been developing stronger bilateral ties. Um, really, it's been doing it uh, with the US, with Europe, with the Quad, and then with a small sort of subsection of other countries. So uh, India-Vietnam ties have been um, improving. Uh, maybe India-Singapore, you, you could look to. Uh, but I think there's still quite a lot of work to do um, with Southeast Asia. The challenge that India has uh, is that Southeast Asia is predominantly interested in trading relationships. And so India, which uh, until recently hasn't really been able to offer those kind of trading relationships in particular, just as the US um, exited from uh, the C CPTPP trade deal, India decided not to go into RCEP, which was really the big ask that the Southeast Asian countries had. Um, equally, I mean, India has tried to talk a good game about civilizational diplomacy, trying to make links amongst countries that, that share either a Hindu or Buddhist uh, a sort of heritage, but that doesn't mean terribly much um, uh, for, for most people. So I think India still has work to be done. Um, um, External Affairs Minister Jayashankar recently gave a speech in Thailand in which he tried to push back against this perception that you hear in the region that India, um, you know, you just didn't hear very much from India. And, and he made various arguments that actually uh, India was uh, and was going to increasingly be an important economic player, that there were particular initiatives that India had undertaken uh, where India was contributing to Southeast Asia's common security. And so India is trying to, uh, to make that case, but I think there, there's more work left to do. And to be fair, um, my judgment of where India has been putting its diplomatic effort um, is that it's been putting its effort into building links with European countries, with Australia, with Japan, rather than Southeast Asia. Well, let me pick up on the Japan part. Uh, obviously, uh, former uh, Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe, who was, uh, as everyone knows, uh, assassinated a few months ago, uh, had a very close relationship with uh, Modi uh, in India, and, and they uh, what seemed from the outside at least dramatically deepened their ties uh even more so than it seemed the united states was able to do with india um is that an accurate assessment and where where do you see uh indo-japanese relations today are they are they 
you know, are they a functional element in the geopolitics of the region? Uh, are they deepening or is it really just, uh, you know, a lot of talk and, and nothing else? No, I think they are important and they are deepening. So when Prime Minister Kishida-san uh, took office, then uh, a visit to, to see Modi in Delhi was one of his very first international visits. Um, I think there's more interest in Japan uh, in both in investing in India. Now India is having a moment of relative economic optimism. I mean, India has now retaken its position as the world's fastest growing economy. Um, and in the upsy-downsy story of India's growth trajectory is having a little moment in the sun where people are getting excited about India's growth potential again. And part of that is geopolitically driven um, in ways that would interest Japan. So you're just beginning to see for the first time people taking seriously the idea that India could become a producer of uh, semiconductors or well, more like microelectronics, um, but eventually semiconductors um, uh, becoming more of a, of a kind of factory floor for Asia. Um, and so if you're a Japanese company looking uh, to uh, reduce your reliance on China, um, then you can't put everything in Vietnam. Vietnam is not a big enough market. It's only about the size of a small Chinese province. India, on the other hand, looks a much more enticing long-term bet. Uh, it's a potentially huge domestic market. Um, and if it can crack its manufacturing problem, then it stands to gain enormously from uh, countries moving away or trying to disentangle them from the Chinese system. Now, there's a lot of ifs and buts in that because, you know, India has tried to do this before. It's very complicated. I don't think you're going to see in India as a home for large scale semiconductor manufacturing anytime soon. Uh, but clearly, that's the potential. Equally, there are other things that Japan, Japan does very well, like infrastructure investment, uh, which India needs a lot of. So I think economically it's important, but really this is a, a security partnership. Um, the two countries uh, uh, see themselves as, as having common cause in, in Asia by being threatened by the rise in China. And so almost more than anything, it's the diplomatic support that they provide one another and the relationships that they're trying to forge with an independent of uh, the United States that, that, that sort of are the drivers of this. James, when we're talking about um, India's GDP growth, I think it's fascinating when it comes uh, in the context of China's slowing GDP growth. And um, some people even say that maybe China's growth is China's economy is not going to grow at all this year. Um, when we look at demographics as well, China's demographics is going down, this population is aging, um, and India is actually the fastest growing country in the world. I think I'm right in saying that. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Um, so James, I wanted to ask you basically what, what, what you think is going to happen with a rising India in the continent. Do these factors like economic growth and demographic growth mean that it could be um, something to contend with rather than a rising China? Well, um, I think if India is to become a great power or a, what uh, Mr. Jayashankar until recently called a leading power as in a, a regional power, um, it needs to have a strong economy. And that sounds like a very basic point, but you, know, you can't uh, afford the costs that come with being uh, a player, even in your own region or with aspirations to, for global status, um, if your economy isn't, isn't very large, you know, the, the military spending and all of the rest that, that comes with that. So 
India's rise as a great power is predicated on, on a certain amount of economic success. Um, equally, if China's economy slows and, and India's does begin a, a sort of sustained rise, then that's the kind of thing that will attract attention. It will uh, make it much easier to uh, develop diplomatic and economic partnerships of other sorts. As I say, that I remember a senior minister in Singapore once telling me that the the problem with the relationship with India um, is, you know, it was fine to have these diplomatic links and you had cultural and educational exchanges, but really what countries like Singapore were looking for was opportunities for, for trade and economic growth. And if India didn't provide that, then it meant that the relationship was sort of sitting on a stool with, with only one leg. I mean, the, 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 this, the sort of other part of your point, which is the, the slowing of China's growth, I think is a really interesting phenomenon that we haven't really begun to grapple with. Um, Kevin Rudd was here relatively recently in Singapore and, and we were on a panel discussion in which he was musing on the challenges of China's economic growth model um, and how severe it would be and what Xi would do after the party Congress and you know the balance between domestic political control and the kind of potential re-liberalization that you would need to have the Chinese economy um, reform and grow at a higher level. If we assume, as I think the conventional wisdom is now, that it's quite likely that China's economy will be growing not at seven or eight or even five or six, but something like three or four percent um, over the, the kind of coming period, then it's an interesting thought to think through, well, what will that do to China's relative geoeconomic position, as in do all these countries in Southeast Asia that have been looking uh, to China as their great meal ticket for the next 20 or 30 years with exports and investment suddenly take a, a second look and think, well, you know, China's part of our economic future, but we can't put all of our eggs in that basket and therefore we need to diversify a little bit more um, to add in the, the trend towards economic decoupling and bifurcation. Um, and it may gradually over time uh, um, lead uh, some of these countries caught in the middle uh, to slightly reevaluate their relationship with China. But I think that will take quite a long time. I don't think it's something that's going to happen uh, overnight. And even if there's a, a financial crisis in China, which, which some people muse that there might be given the, the, the sort of the debt levels in the economy, even that I think would take a while to work through um, and, and one shouldn't be excessively optimistic, if you see what I mean, about the, the, the way in which countries in the region will, will peel away from China if, if the growth begins to slow a bit. So, James, we've, um, we've covered a lot of the big countries so far. And as we, we start to, to wind down a little bit, um, you're sitting in Singapore, which plays a pretty uh, interesting and, and some would say unique role uh, in the region. Um, can you just, it's not a country we talk about um, that much, unfortunately, and, and uh, in D.C., sometimes we, we focus and sometimes we don't. So um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the role that Singapore is a, is a very small, obviously, geographically tiny uh, player, but one that punches above its weight, as, as evidenced by Shangri-La, that you guys host there and, and its other relationships? Where where does Singapore fit into, into this equation and, and some of the other uh, the other countries. And then, and then before, because I'm, I'm saying this now, because I'll forget, uh, after you've answered that, I'd like to ask a little bit, there there has been um, some democratic uh, related moves uh, in the region. Um, uh, 
former Prime Minister Najib losing his appeal and sentenced to jail, uh, his full jail term in Malaysia. Um, questions, of course, of, of what's going on uh, with um, uh, the Burma um, situation and the like. So if you could you know, maybe just go around the region and talk about some of the things that we need to think about uh, and, and be aware of, both in London but in Washington, and maybe starting with, with the role that Singapore plays. Yeah, so let me deal with Singapore first. I mean, I think Singapore, you're right, has an outsized influence because uh, I was telling someone the other day, it's a little bit like the old, I think it was Al Haig who who once said, uh, you know, who the hell do I call um, from Washington if I want to call Europe? Um, and, and if you want to call Southeast Asia, my sense is, you know, most countries call Singapore there. It's a small country, but very well connected, excellent, um, you know, skilled bureaucracy, really knows what's going on in the region. And so um, you'll have noticed that when um, US bigwigs come to the region, um, actually the countries that they tend to come to most often are Singapore and Vietnam, neither of which are formal US treaty allies. And in, their, in your own way, that tells you in a sense where um, the US and Europeans, I mean, Singapore is a very easy place to come to. So people come to it for that reason. But you come to Singapore because it's where you get your best read on the region. And also, um, you know, Singapore is, has been adept at developing good partnerships with both sides of the equation. And then Vietnam for different reasons, because it's seen as a country that is a sort of growth opportunity in various different respects. Um, so Singapore has been influential in another respect, which is it is the most articulate exponent of the Southeast Asian view of the coming era of great power competition, uh, by which I mean the, the don't make us choose thesis. And the best articulation of that came in the 2019 uh, Shangri-La dialogue speech, uh, keynote speech given by Prime Minister Lee. Um, and to put this very crudely, the argument that, that Singapore has made um, in a sense, speaking for the region is that we need a new modus vivendi between the two superpowers uh, in which China recognizes that the US is a long-term player in Asia and it isn't going to get kicked out and China can't be a hegemon um, and it's got to live with the reality of American power. But America has to realize that China is a rising and growing force in the region and it's not realistic to imagine that China is going to have the same amount of say um, when it has an economy this big and a military this big as it did you know, 10 or 20 years ago. And therefore we need to come to some kind of rapprochement and then we can all you know live in peace and everything will be fine and we can trade and grow rich um that has sort of been the singapore line that was the argument that prime minister lee made um it it, it i think i think now even singapore has begun to admit that maybe that that moment has passed and so recently a couple of months ago uh, um or rather yeah, a couple of weeks ago actually um um, Prime Minister Lee gave his annual PowerPoint address to the nation, uh, which is a wonderful moment in the annual Singaporean calendar in which PM Lee gives a, a, an hour and a half PowerPoint presentation going into all sorts of <laughs> hilarious, well, hilarious and rather rather sort of policy wonkish details about the building of, of railway, uh, the building of new airports and new uh, housing. But he also talks about geopolitics and, and his speech this year was very kind of downbeat, um, he didn't suggest that uh, he basically said, you know, we've been trying to get these guys to talk to one another for a while. It's not working very well. We've got to prepare for more difficult times ahead. And so I think to some degree, there's a there's a new realism in Southeast Asia that the moment of the sort of superpower tension that we're in uh, is now a, a kind of feature, not a bug. It's not something that can be wished away. And it may have some quite damaging consequences, um, even in you know scenarios well short of outright conflict, um, for the growth models that Southeast Asian countries uh, have had. So I think Singapore, 
has been on a kind of journey of its own. There's still a hope that, um, in a sense, you can put a floor under this this relationship between the US and China, and that even if they don't get along, there'll be a degree of um, untangling, and that hopefully Singapore will will be fleet of foot and find a way to to do business with both sides. It also has the advantage that, relatively speaking, Singapore looks very attractive. Um, Hong Kong is, in some respects, sort of going down the tubes. Um, and so uh, with its largest competitor um, heading in a rather different direction, Singapore still looks quite attractive. So I think there's a, there's a sort of bull case for Singapore, but the moment of US-China competition is obviously very complicated for a small country that has traditionally had very good relations with both China and the US. And the question is, can you manage that anymore? Your question about democracy and values um, is an interesting one, and it rubs up against a totally different issue in terms of Biden's strategy, which is this top-line narrative of democracies against autocracies, which plays very badly in this part of the world. Um, because just on the face of it, if you look around Southeast Asia, there aren't really very many democracies. I mean, there's sort of Indonesia um, moving in roughly the right direction, but even in Indonesia, it's um, it's a little little bit sketchy. Um, you've had the coup in Myanmar, which removes the brightest example of a certain kind of democratization. You had another coup in Thailand. And uh, Singapore is sort of roughly holding steady. But if you look on indexes of uh, particularly the liberal democratic indexes, then Singapore has always done rather badly on issues of you know press freedom and things like that. Um, so if you look around Southeast Asia, it uh, it's a good example of um, you know, a, a sort of erosion of democracy. It's hard to find many countries um, in Southeast Asia where one can be uh, very optimistic about um, the, the nature uh, of their political systems. Uh, and, and in a sense, US foreign policy sort of reflects this, that, as I say, you know, they're, they're very fond of developing new partnerships with Vietnam, which is a communist autocracy. And so in practice, uh, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make all that much difference with who the U.S. is trying to befriend. Um, but some countries in Southeast Asia get kind of cheesed off with this uh, democracy versus autocracy rhetoric because it appears to be patronizing. Singapore, for instance, was very happy um, not to be invited to the, the great gathering of the democracies that, that marked the early part of Biden's administration. They won't be fussed about this and they don't see it as very helpful. Um, equally, even countries like Japan, uh, which are democracies, don't tend to see this narrative as very helpful because they see the most important task ahead of forging a diverse coalition of countries of whatever system of governance you like. Um, you know, So long as they're in the business of pushing back against China, the Japanese don't care very much. So they also, um, even as a, a a mature parliamentary democracy don't like to talk in these terms, neither do the South Koreans, um, Taiwanese maybe do a little bit, but um, but yeah, so it, the basic question is not, not much optimism for pro-democracy advocates in Southeast Asia, uh, but in a funny way that, that question itself is becoming um, a secondary one to the more urgent question of the coalition that you can cobble together to balance China, which is really the primary driver of uh, foreign policy in, in almost all of these countries, democracies or no. Well, James, that is that is great and a, a great um, overview, but your your insights, I think, onto, uh, into the, uh, the, the question of um, the efficacy of U.S. policy um, of... Um, Quite frankly, you know, just starting off with with the role of of major outside powers or potentially major outside powers, um, 
like uh, like the UK, the the Indian role. I mean, it was just um, incredibly insightful. Uh, there's a lot more we could talk about, but um, we've 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 covered a lot of ground. Um, so uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for for giving us uh, an update, and uh, I hope that. Um, We'll be able to come back and talk with you again as as maybe we get a little bit more uh, sense of where things will be going over the the next year uh, or so. And particularly, I think from the U.S. perspective, um, where we started and and Cindy asked you about uh, the Taiwan question, um, that's going to be a real uh, real touchstone for the U.S. is to try to understand how the other nations in the region are looking at at this, which is you, it, it, you and you've you've put down the marker, James. You said we will not have to wait that long for a fifth Taiwan Strait crisis, so we're going to hold you to that, uh, and we'll uh, hopefully uh, be able to talk with you again. So, um, on behalf of Cindy, you and and myself here, uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's very nice. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so long time long time listener, first time appearer, but uh, be delighted. <laughs> Hope to uh, hope to see you both in uh, in Singapore before too long. Absolutely, we look forward to that. Thanks, James. Thank you, James. Well, Cindy, that was that was great. I mean, we really don't talk enough about Southeast Asia, not simply on the podcast, but but in America in general, and and certainly in Washington. So I'm I'm really glad James could uh, could review all of that for us. But I, I had a different question before we close out um, uh, where we started with, which is obviously folks here. Uh, have spent a lot of time over the past ten days uh, watching the um, uh, the um, memorial, the funeral, the the ceremonies, if you call them that. Uh, but you're there in London, and um, it's obviously a, a a a much bigger thing for you all than us. And I just wondered if you'd, what's it been like over the last ten days? How do how do people feel? Are is there confidence for the future, the new Carolian era, and um and just Tell us what it, what it was like, especially uh, we're taping this the day after the funeral, which was just an extraordinary spectacle. It was absolutely extraordinary. And this is coming from someone who is not a massive monarchist, but just someone who loves uh, tradition, understands the importance of British identity. Watching that yesterday was just, it was very touching. It was amazing, um, every single part of it. And it was also uh, fabulous that world leaders like Joe Biden were sitting way behind the Commonwealth leaders, which really, I think, goes to show. I think that's because he came late. That's what we heard. They got they got stuck in traffic. So he got in row 14. I I thought I was giving them credit for a seating plan that meant that the Commonwealth <laughs> yeah, no, was I more know. important than. Um, <laughs> but perhaps I'm wrong. The Foreign Office has been quite busy and then not not had they haven't confirmed a proper guest list at the time of recording yet. Um, but it's been a really, really odd 10 days actually of course the mood of the country has been very somber mm-hmm. um i think a lot of people especially of the older generation really felt like she was always there throughout their lives i mean a 70 year reign you wouldn't really find many british people who haven't you know who are older than her who, who she was a queen of mm-hmm. um so that's odd um there's also been quite bizarre moments where you know corp- corporate companies um, like Centre Parks, which is a holiday park in the UK, they just don't really understand what the best way of mourning is. So American listeners might be amused to know that Centre Parks initially said on Monday, the funeral day, they would kick out all of their guests. So that if you were over there for for a week long holiday, you'd be kicked out on that one day and then you can come back in afterwards because it was a grieving process. Following a backlash, (laughs) following a backlash, they then said, okay, guests can stay, but they have to stay inside of their cabins they can't leave they can't leave their rooms and so it's just been quite bizarre and you know there have been some quite 
yeah, quite comical examples of 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 you know bike bike sheds being locked up in in commemoration of the you know quite odd places because this kind of thing doesn't normally happen you know it hasn't happened in seventy years the country it, it's absolutely monumental thing to happen and I think um the country is just kind of getting grips with it and for us journalists you know it's been ten days of no politics right. mainly remembering the Queen um looking forward to the future as you say Misha um the queue the the giant yeah. miles long queue to see the queen's coffin has been um quite interesting to watch and very very touching as well uh but yes i think i think having had that 10 days of mourning you know Liz trust the prime minister is now hitting the ground running with going to the un um this week right. and i think it will be politics rushing back very quickly and um uh, i know you have to run but I, I wanted to ask you two questions one was there was a bit of a contretemps with the chinese uh being invited uh, to the to the funeral and and I think Ian Duncan Smith, who was a former conservative leader, tried to get them disinvited. I want to ask you quickly about that, and then and then a wrap, a final question, and just and and how do you feel the new king has been doing? So maybe start with the Chinese, and then we'll go to the king. Sure. Um, so with the Chinese uh, row, basically um, the funeral guest list was follow the rules of um it's a state funeral which has very strict protocols and the protocols are that if you have diplomatic relations with a country you invite their head of state to come if the head of state can't come they send a representative so pretty much all of the countries in the world were invited with the exception of russia and belarus which whom you know for obvious reasons the uk is in de facto war with um and also myanmar which um the the uk government doesn't recognize the government of very very relevant to what we were just talking about a few other states heads of state were not invited because diplomatic relations are not normal for example north korea um but so 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 given that china was invited xi jinping was invited and ian duncan smith he co-founded um the group a group called interparliamentary association so he co-founded a group called the interparliamentary alliance on china uh which as the name suggests, interparliamentary, so it's an international group. And he's probably one of the leading hawkish voices on China in the British Parliament. And he basically called this Project Kowtow. Yeah, right, um, right. Not very original, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, that why, why should we invite the Chinese when they've sanctioned me and other parliamentarians? Um, we'll have to sit in the same hall with them. Big row over this, and there was a lot of confusion about whether or not the Chinese were, were invited, not helped by the new Foreign Secretary James Cleverly and the Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, who all had mixed messaging. Fundamentally, the Chinese were invited and they were allowed to come to all parts of the funeral. And, and I think IDS, as we call him here, IDS wasn't very happy about it. Um, but I've received... be Ian Duncan Smith. Yes, that's right. Just for and... our listeners, Ian Duncan Smith. <laughs> Um, and I've written on the matter about how, you know, given how non-political the news has been in the UK over the last 10 days, given how non-political the Queen's life was, the monarchy, the constitutional monarchy in the UK should be, uh, that is not a good time to kind of try to reset relationship with China, that, that if, if the protocol says, if you have diplomatic relations with the country, they come, then I think that's what we should stick by. And indeed, that's what the government stuck by in the end, but it does cause a, a bit of a stink. And here. you wrote a great piece on this in The Spectator that people can read precisely on this question of the politicization. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Queen, you know, she her, one of her biggest merits was that she shook hands with authoritarians and dictators throughout her reign. That was her job, yeah. you know, to be constitutional, to be, to be a figurehead for British soft power, to overcome not just domestic politics, but international politics. Misha, you might remember, you know, that clip of her meeting Deng Xiaoping for the first time in 1986. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think China then is necessarily any 
worse or better than China now, you know, in, in many ways. Right. Um, of course, specifics have changed, for example, the situation in Xinjiang. Uh, but nevertheless, it was still a dictatorship and the Queen was happy to shake Deng Xiaoping's hand. It was a charming occasion. Um, so I, I think it's important that we don't politicize her in death and say, oh, she would have been so offended had the Chinese come, which is what mm-hmm. some we were hearing from some quarters. And I, 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 I had a problem with that. Um, as to your last question about the king, I think he's done quite well, actually. I think he has done quite well. I mean, it was very touching watching him at the funeral, and it was clear that it was a very emotional time for him, but he kept it together, a very British stiff upper lip, you might say. Um, he clearly has been waiting for this role for so long, but as he said himself, you never expect it to actually come. And now a lot of responsibility lies on his head because he has to fill her shoes, and she is really the the model constitutional monarch and he has not been known yeah. to have yeah. no opinions in the past you know he's he's got strong opinions on a lot of things and he has signaled that he will stop opining on those things to be more like queen elizabeth and so far i think he has been very dignified there have been a few occasions where we've just gone viral about him you know getting angry at leaky pens in general but if you think about it, this is a man who's just lost his mother and has now the biggest right. job in the world right. um, or one of the biggest jobs in the world. So, you know, I think a little bit of stress coming through is understandable. Um, yeah, so I, I think he's been doing quite well. But but the, the continued meetings with Liz Truss will be quite interesting to see because I think one can safely regard yeah. her as probably not his ideal choice of prime minister um, had he mm-hmm. still been Prince of Wales. Mm-hmm. But now he has to, you know, fulfill a different role. Yeah, and and uh, just I mean, I'm just amazed at his stamina. Quite frankly, I'm a 73 year old man, and he walking the royal mile, walking uh, walking the funeral procession, 500 dignitaries he welcomed, all those services he went to the four nations. Uh, I mean, I I cannot understand how someone could keep going. Uh, and by the way, not like wearing a T-shirt and, and jeans. I mean, fully dressed up. So it was, I thought it was just amazing on the part uh, of all of them. But um, uh, as everyone uh, you know here, a lot of people are are very fond of the royal family, ironically, as as Americans. But uh, we can come back to all of that uh, at at some point. And um, but it's been great having you co-host again. Thank you so much for joining. And I I hope we'll uh, we'll be able to get you back soon because I know the listeners appreciate it. Thanks so much, Misha. And thank you to listeners. <laughs> More than when I go solo, that's for sure. So again, uh, Cindy Yu from The Spectator, please read her uh, her work at The Spectator and follow her blog, Chinese Whispers, and her, her tweeting. Um, for The Pacific Century, this has been Misha Oslin, and we will see you again next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.